like I mentioned just a second ago, we got loads of scripture to get to here and a lot, lot of good Bible stuff. So I want to jump into the text real quickly um, in just a second here. Um, I, I just want to preface today and and just sort of start out by by just sort of a word of, of encouragement and instruction about what it means to engage in the body of Christ, to engage in the word. Um, I think, I think very simply, I just want, I want to beg you, actually, I want to implore you to engage with the word on Sunday mornings like it's your lifeline. Because it really is. Not just Sundays, but, but every day of your week, the word of God, the truth herein, the power for life change contained in these pages has got to be your lifeline. Because if it's not, it's going to be a, a plaything in the back window of your car that you take out when you need to look good. That's not the game we're playing. That's not the game we're playing in the body of Christ. What we're doing is we're feeding off the Word of God like our lives depend on it. Because they really do. And that's one of the big messages of all of Revelation, uh, especially last week and this week as we talk about this blessing of one who reads aloud the words, the one who reads it and keeps it. And I think this is important for us because, because whether you... Whether you care or not, whether you realize it or not, if, if this word of God is not the sustenance for your deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, then there are going to be loads of extremely poor alternatives that will be the place you plug in. You will engage functionally with, with option after option after option for you becoming the person you're going to be someday. If it's not this, it's going to be something. So I just I want to beg you to approach Sunday mornings, your own time in the Word, uh, what we do here uh, with. I, I want Sunday morning to not go underutilized for you. And I'm afraid that for a lot of people in lots of Sunday morning worship services today, <laughs> the opportunity here now is grossly underutilized grossly underutilized so many of us we come to the body and like to worship and to are engaging with the word with this sort of passive like sure hope you're good today scott like like your spiritual growth depends on whether or not i happen to be good and the music is good (laughs) that's not how spiritual growth works it's not how it works At, at at a fantastic church that has way more resources than us, with a much better preacher than us, with a lot cooler band than us, with much better programs than us. That's not how it works there either. That can become its own plaything, just like anything else. So I just want to implore you to engage with the Word of God as if your life depended upon it. Because it does. It does. That's the truth of the blessing of Revelation 1-3. So I just, I want to implore you, don't let Sundays go by underutilized. Because then for a lot of people, like, they miss Sunday. It's like, oh, well, what, what did the Word have to do with my life the rest of the week? Eh. You know, that's, that's passive Christian life right there. That's, that's not how you become who God created you to be. It's just not. So I just want to implore you... <laughs> Uh, End of rant. Don't let Sundays go by.
not taking advantage of them. Because your, your engagement with what we do here is, is going to be the single most important factor as to whether or not First Christian Church, the body of Christ, what I have to say means a hill of beans to you. It's going to have to be proactive involvement first. So, let's get proactively involved. To Revelation. Uh, when you begin a book like Revelation and begin studying, a lot of times it's easy to, to give a lot of information at the beginning, like a lot of introductory information, like the author of the book, where it was written, uh, the, the cultural context within which the book was written. Uh, we gave a little bit of that last week, and I'm just trying to tell you we're going to do that as we go along in the book uh, because there are plenty of places where those, those important things will come out. And so we'll just sort of tell you where it's pertinent. So uh, there are two main sections today, two main sections in your notes there in the study notes. Uh, blessing, doxology. Uh, sort of that first blessing part is kind of the title of the book. Uh, doxology is sort of an introduction to everything that's going on uh, in the book. And uh, we'll fill in some blanks there along the way. I've shown you scripture references that we use and that we cite today. And the big idea today is that Jesus Christ, this is in your notes, Jesus Christ reveals himself. He reveals himself so that those who know him are blessed and praise him. Those are the the two things of, of blessing and doxology, that those who know him are blessed and praise him regardless of the circumstances. Regardless of the circumstances, it's really easy to praise him and sing Jesus songs when when the band's good and the preacher's good. That's good. That's easy. But regardless of the circumstances is the kind of truth of the matter that that realizes the full weight of the authority of Jesus Christ, regardless of how well he's being made known to you by people. Hope you're catching that. Because the clear picture of Jesus given in the words of Revelation is, is something that flies in the face of so much of how we approach him uh, in our Christian life. We'll get to that in just a little bit here. So the, the book of Revelation is a sort of exclamation point uh, for the sentence that is the Bible. And verses 1 to 8 are an introduction to its contents. So let's, uh, let's kind of look here at that first section, verses 1 to 3. Just read this along with me. Verses 1 to 3 here, the Revelation. Of Jesus Christ. There's the title. Which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Here's the blessing. Verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now, let's jump back to verse one. First five words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hit pause for just a second and let's talk about that little phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those 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 five words there. In the original letter from John, there is no verb in that first sentence. It's just like sort of an announcement of title, (laughs) revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, And and what we said last week, and I want to say again, is that that little word of, if you're a Bible circler and writer like I am, uh, I put of and I wrote, you know, from and about. Because that's what the of means. It's a revelation that's from Jesus Christ and it's about Jesus Christ. It means both of those. So these first four words tell us what it is and where it comes from. And this is the first blank in your notes there under blessing, is that the the revelation, the book of Revelation, 
unveils Jesus Christ for who he really is. Revelation unveils. Remember that word revelation just means to show, to reveal, to unveil Jesus Christ for who he really is. And I want to camp out there for just a few minutes. Because there's something really important to make sure we get about this revelation of Jesus Christ. This is, this is a don't miss it kind of moment here in Revelation. Because I could break out charts. I could talk about the number seven. I could tell you about amil, post-mill, pan-mill, pre-mill, all that kind of stuff. I could do that ad nauseum if that means anything to you. Uh, if it doesn't yet, good. Um, I could do that ad nauseum. But if you do not get this point... The rest of Revelation is going to be a maze and there's going to be puzzle pieces that you'll not be able to fit together well. Because this is, this is the critical thing about the whole thing. If you don't get this, your view of what you want to get out of Revelation and your Christian life and life in general will be skewed from the very beginning. Because our view of what we want to read here, of how we live our lives, of our relationships with one another has got to be Revelation. From the top down. It's got to be something that God reveals from the top down, not something that we impose with our expectations and filters from the bottom up. This book reveals Jesus as he really is, which means that your conception, your view of who Jesus really is, must be informed first and foremost by who he shows himself to be in Scripture. And as we see in the book of Revelation, Jesus is not a cuddly and gentle friend or a buddy whose main goal is to make your life fun or comfortable or easy. It may sound a little silly or even confrontational to hear, but, but your, our sort of view of a cuddly grandpa Jesus is something that is a maligned from the bottom up kind of transaction. Because we've messed up the biblical view of who Jesus is. Because we have created along the way expectations for what we want him to be. And that's how we approach our relationship with him. As if we set the terms for who Jesus is going to be. Do you see how backwards that is? That's from the bottom up instead of the nature of God revealing himself, which inherently has to be God unveiling himself, revealing himself from the top down to us. This is something that we uh, sophisticated modern Christians must take to heart and let sink in. Jesus Christ is not a cuddly bunny or somebody who is made after our image and our expectations. The revelation of Jesus Christ given here is something that shows that he is almighty God with all power and might and authority. Something beyond our greatest conceptions of him. And for us, think about this, for us to approach Jesus as if my expectations for what I want him to be are how this relationship works is perhaps one of the most embarrassingly sad things that we can state about ourselves. And it's something I've done myself so many times. As if, as if I set the terms for what God's going to do in my life. As if I set the terms for his expectations of me. The picture we see in Revelation, and we'll see it a lot next week, believe me, is one of a mighty Jesus 
with a sword coming out of his mouth, who has something to say about the sin of people in rebellion against him. Colossians 1.15 makes the point that, that Jesus is not something that's created in our image, but, but that's what we do functionally. He says he is the image of the invisible God. This is Colossians 1.15. Christ, speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. We get this so backwards, and we bring our expectations about what we want in life, which is defined, by the way, when we're honest, by uh, empty, worldly sorts of values. Let's just be honest. Our expectations that we bring to the table of our relationship with God are empty, worldly values when we're honest. We bring those expectations for following him based on an image of God made from the bottom up. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, that's by Christ, all things were created. The preeminence and supremacy of Christ alone in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. These are the things he created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, all things were created through him and for him. Simple truth, but listen to it. Let it sink in. Hear it. All things were created by and for Jesus Christ. Not me. Not you. Earth was not created for our glory. The the resources we have given to us were not given to us for our glory. Every ounce of our being, everything that we steward on behalf of God was given to us by him for his glory. And so God sets the term For how creation, which includes us, he sets the terms for how we are meant to have relationship with him. And Colossians 1.17 says, he is before all things. In him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the, here's that word, beginning that John picks up here in Revelation 1. He says, I am the Alpha, the beginning. God the Father and then Jesus speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega. And the Omega. And this vision of God the reality about which we cannot handle unless he limits himself. Hear that again. Because Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the reality about which we cannot handle unless he limits himself is the kind of picture we see in Revelation. This is a Jesus who is not based on your or my expectations. And the more I think about the implications of that, the more embarrassed I am to think about the ways in which I have approached God as if I can manage. As if I can manipulate him. The the, the picture, the clear picture of Christ that John sees in Revelation 1 is verses 14 to 16. Turn there real quick if you want to. Revelation 1, 14 to 16. This is the picture of Christ as he is in his full weight and glory that will be made known. His eyes were like a flame of fire, it says. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The glory of Jesus Christ revealed fully as John sees here in Revelation is like the sun shining in full strength. Think about that for just a second. The sun as it is now is a power we can hardly even fathom. I'm going to show you a picture. The power 
of the sun is something we already cannot handle. NASA recently found this picture of a solar flare that happened uh, sometime this summer. That solar flare, it's, it's a piece of this huge gaseous energy uh, uh, orb, that uh, sphere, that throws out some of these, these, uh, this energy in a solar flare. And, and 500,000 miles long of this solar flare just happened this past summer at a speed of 900 miles per second. Now, the sun at its outmost point is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, at its core estimated 27 million degrees hot, and the sun itself, as we speak now, is emitting enough power in every one second to power the United States for 9 million years every second, and that is infinitely less than the white-hot blazing power of Jesus Christ in all his full glory. And we think we can manage him. And set our expectations for how we relate to a white-hot blazing God who has all power and authority. When you think about it, it's truly embarrassing. How we have approached Jesus Christ as if we set terms for how the relationship is supposed to go. As if I'm going to tell him, you know what, God, this is really what I'd like my spiritual growth to look like. This is this is really the way that I'm going to be able to handle this relationship. So say what you want. We function. As if. Jesus is this convenient, wouldn't-hurt-a-fly kind of wimpy Jesus that we keep in our back pockets for when we really need him. And friends, that Jesus isn't worthy of anybody's worship. Contrary to that picture of a Jesus made in our image, in Revelation we see the Jesus Christ who is revealed in full glory and who deserves every ounce of praise and whose reign as king of the universe, as Revelation tells us, will be made known in power. And I'm pretty fully convinced that we sophisticated modern American Christians could use a little less friendly and a little more fear when it comes to our approach of following the Master, who is truly worthy of worship. And, and I offer up this book of Revelation as a good antidote. As a good antidote to manageable Jesus. And friends, I, I just want to say one more thing about this. <laughs> This is huge. That we have a clear picture of who Jesus is, the reality of his perfection and his holiness, his blazing white hot perfection, because the only fitting response is worship that acknowledges his worthiness and our sinfulness. You don't just look into the face of Jesus on a cross or in his future glory and start asking yourself, you know, Jesus, I would really hope for a little more comfortable and fun existence. Could you arrange that for me, Jesus? 
the, the kind of fitting response of worship is Jesus, no matter what comfort, pain, I will worship and I will serve you and I will and I'll live my whole life to be about your blazing white hot glory that demands every ounce of my response, no matter how I feel. No matter how I feel. That's the reality of the picture of Jesus. And and I'm afraid that we've raised more than a couple generations of young people on a snacks-based relationship with Jesus. As if Jesus just wants you to have fun. Following Jesus may mean more grief than you've ever thought. Following Jesus will cost you more than you ever possibly conceived it would cost you. No other Jesus is worth giving up everything for. If it's not a white, hot, blazing Jesus who has a two-edged sword that's going to come and judge the living and the dead. This book is a revelation of that Jesus. The reality about which demands every ounce of your being you will ever be able to muster times infinity. And I worry, I worry, I worry that we continue to fashion Jesus from the bottom up, from our expectations. Instead of the kind of humble openness that says, whatever you're telling me in here, that's the Jesus that I want to worship. Miles to go before we sleep. Verse 1. Let's jump back to the text. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Circle that word him if you're taking notes. That's about Jesus there. The revelation of Jesus, which God gave Jesus to show to his servants, now that's us, the servants, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. In that first sentence there, we see the twofold purposes of Revelation. It's to reveal Jesus, number one, and to show what must soon take place, number two. So if you just want to know real quickly, here's what Revelation's about. Number one, to reveal Jesus, and two, to show what must soon take place. There are lots of texts, uh, lots of things in the text to show us that this re- revealing thing is going on. It uses words like like revelation uh, to show to his servants. Uh, he made it known. That word made it known there is a verb form of the word sign that shows up uh, many times in Revelation for the note takers. 12.1 and 3 and 15.1 is where that made it known verb is used for the word sign. Uh, also at the end of verse 2 it says uh, of all that John saw. So there's all this language of, of showing and of, and of revealing that's going on as, as a hint of what goes on in Revelation. Now, there's something else I want you to notice here. Uh, look at the transmission of the Revelation, who it started with, who it got to. Uh, the transmission of the Revelation. We already know, verse 1, that it came from God through Jesus. So the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. That's two parties involved there. To show to his servants. That's the third party involved. And now look at the uh, end of verse 1. We see two more parties involved between Jesus and us. He says, he, that's Jesus, made it known by sending his angel, that's party number 4, to his servant John. 
number five. So, so as we're reading this even now, there's been a transmission of five different people who the word of God has gone from. It goes from God to Jesus to angel to John to his servants. Ultimately, number five, that's us now. You see, that's how the transmission of the word of God works. If you've been with us for a while, remember in Genesis and in Family Life series, uh, we talked about how, um, if you look for it, discipleship is all over the scriptures. Uh, this, this idea that, that you become a believer because someone else told you about the word and modeled and lived the word. And that that's how discipleship happens. And so for us, we want this revelation to be about you becoming a self-feeding disciple. A self-feeding disciple so that you will multiply yourself in the lives of others. That's how the word of God works in scripture. And that's how we're called to be a part of the body as a self-feeding disciple. It sounds like Second Timothy 2.2 if you want to look that up later. There's, there's five parties involved here. And that's the power that is inherent in the word of God to change lives and be uh, replicated in the life of another. Discipleship is even here in Revelation 1. And because it's one of my, my pet things, I want to make sure I point that out to you. Verse 2 picks up on this theme of God's word being communicated. It says, John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And so verse 3, here comes the actual blessing. Blessed, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Read aloud because they didn't have copies of the scripture like we have today. It was one letter that was passed around to the various churches so they would read it aloud in a context like this. So it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep. It's a two condition blessing. Those who hear and those who keep. For the time is near. If you want to circle that word blessed, uh, probably one of the closest ways for us um, to translate that word into something we realize today and feel the weight of is the word fortunate. Fortunate. Uh, It means happy. It means, you know, blessed. We use that kind of word often. But it's the word fortunate. And the reason people who read and keep the words that we're talking about today in Revelation, the reason they're fortunate is because the time is near and those who read it and who keep it will be saved from the judgment. That doesn't mean we won't see it. We won't experience the judgment. But it means, like everyone else, even though we experience it, those who are saved, the judgment will be just an occasion of joy for having been saved by the blood of Christ. So so you're fortunate if you've read it and you've kept it because that means when Christ comes in power, it won't mean for your damnation, but for your joy to have eternity with him. And that's a big, big difference. So John says, blessed is the one who reads aloud and keeps what is written in it for the time is near. There are seven of these blessings throughout all of Revelation. This is just the first one. And I've put this in your study notes so you can uh, look those up a little bit later. The seven blessings of Revelation. And uh, there are seven blessings in our passage today. Seven, seven is used three different times. We have seven uh, churches, seven spirits before the throne. There are seven blessings. Um, it's in a bunch of other places later on. And we're not going to talk about the significance of seven all today. Uh, but 
uh, it, it carries the idea of completion or perfection. Um, if you'll remember in creation, uh, six days of creation on the seventh uh, day, which never actually ended. On the seventh day, uh, God looked at his creation and said, it's good. It's completed. It's finished. And so seven, because of that, became something used in all the scripture. And John picks up on that as, as an idea of completion, perfection. And so reading on, he says this, verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. There are more than seven in Asia, uh, but there were seven to whom he wrote. Uh, and, and this idea, the symbol of, of completion being in place means that not only was it applicable to those to whom he was writing in Asia, but it's applicable to us today. So this begins here in verse four, this doxology section, uh, that, that second portion of the introduction here at Revelation. Uh, fancy word doxology, D-O-X-O-L-O-G-Y, is just a word that means, uh, it means glory words, uh, actually, is what it means. It's a hymn of praise or glory. Usually it became uh, a hymn that was sung uh, by the church. We sang actually two uh, doxologies today. Uh, so the introduction to Revelation continues in the form of a doxology, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. We'll break, up the, break out the maps in uh, coming weeks. Uh, he says this, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Notice here in verse 4, there's that, that phrase, who is and who was and who is to come. We, sung, we sang that earlier today. Uh, it's also in verse 8 sort of brackets this section at the beginning at the end. It says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Sort of a literary uh, marker that this doxology section goes from four to eight. So it says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That is God the Father there. So grace and peace to you from God the Father and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Uh, I've only got five minutes left, so we don't have time to go into it much today. But uh, but these seven spirits indicate the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are other places we can talk about that in Revelation. Um, there's a really great study about that. But these seven spirits here that are before the throne are indicative of the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Father, we've got God the Holy Spirit, and then it goes on in the doxology to say it's also from Jesus Christ. So right here, we've got all three persons of the Trinity here in verses 4 and 5. This is a, a typical mark of, of doxology. All three persons of the Trinity are involved. So, by the way, just a little tidbit. Uh, while the word Trinity isn't used in Scripture, the idea, the theological truth of it certainly is. And this is one place where it is. Uh, it goes on to describe Jesus as the revelation of God the Father, starting here at verse 5. Jesus begins to be the revelation of God the Father here in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, and it tells about that revelation. He says, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. This idea of the faithful witness is important because the people reading this are undergoing intense persecution uh, from emperor named Domitian, we'll talk about later. Uh, Domitian, D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N, if you want to look it up. Uh, John himself has been undergoing some persecution. Uh, he was forced to drink poison and lived. Uh, they tried to boil him in uh, oil and he lived. And he was exiled uh, to where he is now writing this revelation on the island of Patmos. Uh, we'll break out the maps later on. 
And so John himself has been suffering for his faith. The people who are receiving this letter from him have been suffering for their faith. And so he says, be encouraged because Jesus, who is coming back, is a faithful witness. Verse five, it says he's the firstborn of the dead. Uh, Long story short, Jesus pioneers resurrection from the dead. He is the first resurrected from the dead. So. Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. He's beginning to put, put together this picture of what Jesus Christ really looks like in his full weight. Uh, he's, he's the ruler of all the kings on earth, it says. Revelation 19.16, when the rider on the white horse comes, on his robe and on his thigh, Jesus has written the words, King of kings and Lord of lords. And John is here reminding us to have a clear picture of who Jesus was as a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. And then he tells us what Christ did. Keep reading verses five and verses six. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This this is the gospel here in just a few words. He who loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. He freed us from something to which we were captive from our sins by his blood. He freed us from a penalty. He substituted our sins with his blood. And that's how he made up for it. The three words are penal, substitutionary, atonement. Fancy big theological terms there. The gospel in three words in your study notes, is penal substitutionary atonement, P-E-N-A-L, which just has to do with something for which you receive a penalty. So the gospel in three words is that the penalty is removed because Christ substitutes. That's the idea of substitutionary. He substitutes himself to make atonement. The the idea of atonement is that when there's a wrong done in a relationship, if if there's something broken in a relationship, it's whatever fixes that relationship. So atonement is made by the blood of Christ that takes away the wrath of God. That's what penal substitutionary atonement is. And it's basically right there in this verse, verses 5 and 6 there. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. In other words, Christ's work on the cross for us, the good news is that what he did there is what makes us a kingdom. In fact, it said, it says it made us a kingdom. We'll come back to that one later on a bunch of times. Don't you worry. Christ's blood made us a kingdom and we are now priests to him. We are mediators reconcilers, we have the blood of Christ that has made us able to do what he did because of his work for us. Not that we affect that change, only the Holy Spirit does, but we can be mediators of that covenant, of that new covenant. And so he says, that's the Jesus, that's the picture that's beginning to come come a little more clear here. Uh, we'll talk even more clarity next week, but, but that's the picture. That this Jesus, in verses 5 and 6, was the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth. He loves us and freed us by his blood and made us a kingdom. We are now priests. And then he says, verse 7, Behold, that Jesus is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, 
and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Behold is like saying, take note, don't miss it, look up. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Daniel 7.13 says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells of how those in Christ will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It says, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This is a reference to Zechariah 12.10. It's in your study notes there where it says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one weeps over a firstborn. The picture is beginning to come clear. That the Jesus Christ who has the full weight and authority of God the Father, is not just a comfortable, convenient, luxurious, make our, make our lives fun kind of Jesus. So don't bring your expectations about what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. Or a husband. Or a worker. Or a grandma. Don't bring your expectations about what it means to be someone who reckons with the full weight and glory of Jesus Christ to the table unless your picture about Jesus is clear. Verse 8 says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The reason for all creation and in the first place, uh, all creation and its ultimate aim eventually to call him Alpha and Omega is to ascribe to Jesus Christ the full weight of the deity of God, the father to call him Alpha and Omega here is to say that all history is moving toward the glory of Jesus Christ. Can that be said of your life? That your life's history is on that kind of trajectory where the glory of God is its purpose and its aim. Is your personal history toward being written toward the glory of God? Is your life story being written such that God is its ultimate aim and purpose? Is God the Alpha and the Omega of your life? I think so many of us don't have an Alpha and Omega kind of purpose for our life. We've got a manageable cartoon Jesus. And our expectations for what he's going to do for us mean that we are sorely disappointed when God's when God's journey for our growth doesn't go like we want it to. When you hit that that place in your your growth and your experience with God where you think, this isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't right. This is not what I expected. It's because you expected a little Jesus in your back pocket that you can conveniently take out. And your picture of Jesus was not revelation. Top down. Full weight and authority of God the Father in the person of Jesus, who will return with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth to judge the living and the dead. That's the only Jesus 
worthy of our worship. And I implore you, I implore you to read the Word for real for yourself. And ask God to give you a picture of who Jesus is so that you can reckon with it. So that you can live now based on what you know will happen. Father in heaven, we are people who who need correction from the truth of your word. And so we just ask that your Holy Spirit would go into those places where we need to hear encouragement, go into those places where we need to hear conviction, that you would give us, Lord, a picture of who you are so that our lives would be lived appropriately. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.